1: father inside sports on 630 Jet. it's 706 my name is reed wilkins thank you so much for tuning in tonight lot tilts to get to we're having fun and by the way thanks uh thanks already to everybody uh supporting stefan radzinski he's made up like uh he's closed the gap by a couple hundred votes he's only 250 behind connor daly he was like 550 behind before he came on so that's cool That'd be a cool opportunity for him. Love that. I love Steph. Very passionate young man about his racing and pursuing his career to the uh, fullest extent. That is great to see. Uh, Apparently, uh, Warren, uh, George Costanza was a hand model. And apparently so was Joey on Friends. Also a hand model at some point. Did you know that? I think I remember that episode, yeah. I have a confession to make. All right. Confession time. I have probably watched less than three episodes of Friends in my life. I never got into it. How do you say less than? Like you stopped halfway through no, one? No, I think I watched two. Okay. <laughs> I should have just said two instead of less than three. I thought maybe you meant three. like two and a half. I think, well, I might have. <laughs> I, probably, I, probably, I probably saw bits and pieces somewhere just through <laughs> osmosis, or it was on before a show that I wanted to watch. So I never watched Friends. Was it that good? I liked it. My wife and I watched it recently on Netflix, so... Well, oh, you didn't see it first run. You're probably too young. Uh, no, I did see some of it first run, but I didn't like it. I preferred Seinfeld. <laughs> Seinfeld was better. Yeah. I thought. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. That is Warren Mulvey. He's our studio producer. You're going to be doing more shows, eh? People are going to have to get used to you, right? I think so. And I uh, read you the news. So? <laughs> I read the news on iNews 880. Shameless plug. Well, it's funny. I can see the iNews 880. I should take a photo where I sit someday. The, 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 there's two windows in this room. One of them goes into the iNews Eighty control room. I don't know why they would think the Ched control room would need to see the iNews room, especially when I'm sitting here because people usually want to avert their eyes from me. But anyway, that's just life. Okay. Uh, tell you what, th- this is really cool. Uh, I-, I didn't know much about this till I started researching this interview. 50 years ago today in Winnipeg, Canada won an international hockey tournament by upsetting the Russians, or as they were then known, the Soviet Union. The Soviets were heavily favored going into this game, going into the tournament that was known as the Centennial Tournament for Canada's 100th birthday. Barry McKenzie, who has had a a long career in uh, hockey, he worked at Notre Dame, he uh, worked for the Minnesota Wild, was a defenseman on this team, and he joins us now. Barry, welcome to Inside Sports. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Yes, Super. Well, Happy New Year. It's great to talk to you. Great to, great to meet you. And I'm glad you, you made time for the show today because uh, I, I think there's a lot of different roads we can go down here. But uh, let's start off with uh, how, uh, how active a spectator are you with, uh, with the current NHL? Have you caught the McDavid and Matthews mania and you're watching all these young guys or uh, what's your level of interest these days?
0: well you know ever since i left the uh, wild i you know i i had it hasn't been one of my top priorities uh this thing with matthews and mcdavid no doubt is uh, something that's pretty special and uh i guess because i wasn't a toronto fan at one time many years ago you know i still keep uh you know wondering how they're doing and so uh uh, you know, Wendell Clark, uh, you know, I coached uh, at the Hound line, Wendell Clark, uh, 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 Lehman, and, and Courtnell. And so, you know, I've always had that interest in, in the thing, and, uh, you know, Wendell just came out with a book now about... Uh, you know his exploits uh, and so uh, yeah I still have an interest in it but I it's not like I sit down and watch a whole whole game I'll, you know I'll watch uh, parts and things like that every now and then and, you know the sports highlights but uh, I'm not as avid a fan as I was uh, many years ago.
1: Well to tell, tell a little people about to tell people a bit about coaching uh, Wendell Clark when was this and what was he like to have as a player
0: well Wendell was at uh, he was at Notre Dame for grade 9 and 10 And uh, I coached him during the grade 9 year, and uh, it was obvious when he uh, came out for the tryouts that he was going to make the team. Uh, He just skated so well, and he loved the physical contact. Uh, He didn't really want to come back to Notre Dame for grade 10 because he would have made the uh, Saskatoon Blades. But uh, his dad said, uh, you're going back to Notre Dame, and uh, then he was coached by Terry O'Malley and had a great year. But then... uh, Went on uh, and had a great career, but, uh, you know, I keep in touch with Wendell quite regularly. And, uh, you know, I said to him one time, I said, you know, you could be making such big bucks now if you hadn't played the way, you know, you you did. But he said, uh, and I said, but you know what, that's the only way you could ever play. You know, that was his, that was, you know, his gut instincts that he had to go out and be uh, hard-nosed, and, and uh, he, he, he tells a story in the book as to how he was out uh, with uh, Glenn Sather, you know, uh, with uh, one, one of the World uh, trying out for uh, Team Canada one year, and he, he didn't make the team, but uh, as he parted t- ways, Glenn said, uh, you're not going to last. <laughs> and, and if you read Wendell's book, you'll see the... Uh, it, injuries that he had compiled over the years and uh, uh, as I say he would have lasted another five years if he hadn't played that way but he wouldn't have been Wendell
1: Clark yeah for sure you you can't uh, I mean you were you were a longtime coach and mentor for a lot of players is it is it true that you can't really coach that with guys they either have it or they don't or can you can you teach a guy to be a little more aggressive and and tougher if he has to be
0: Well, I I think you can to an extent. I don't think you're going to bring out that animal drive, but, uh, you know, Rod Brindamore uh, will will tell you that one of the best things that ever happened to him at Notre Dame was being a, a defensive end on a championship football team, and I believe by playing other sports. You know, you can develop some characteristics that might help you in the game of hockey. And, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of our our kids that played football that uh, did become somewhat more aggressive.
1: Well, that's an interesting comment, Barry, because so much of hockey now for minor hockey players and and kids at the high level trying to eventually become pros is, let's face it, hockey 11, 12 months of the year, right? Everything they do is... Is geared towards being a hockey player, and there you don't hear as many kids who now say, well, "I also played soccer or baseball or football." So you think maybe that's a bad thing that it's so much of a one sport focus, eh?
0: Oh, terrible, terrible thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's okay for a kid to go to a one week, uh, you know, hockey school in the summer, but playing other sports can definitely help. You can help with your agility, your coordination. You know, there's so many things that you can learn. As I say, with football, you can learn a little bit about aggressiveness, how to how to take a hit in hockey, uh, and uh, I, like that's one of the things I see with Matthews. I saw the other day somebody come at him, and I saw him drop the shoulder. You know, and I thought, you know, that's a that's that's a natural, wonderful thing that he's acquired, but. Uh, you know, you can acquire a lot of good skills from other sports that will help you in the game of hockey. And so I, I have, I've always encouraged uh, any kids that I've kind of mentored along here in Sudbury to, to get out. You forget hockey all the time, you know. Uh, and I think you can also get still.
1: Yeah, good point. Barry McKenzie joining us tonight on Inside Sports, talking a little bit about his uh, time as, uh, as the principal and coach at Notre Dame. But we also want to focus tonight, Barry, on something that happened 50 years ago this week, and that was something called the Centennial Tournament, 1967, first week of January. Canada was turning 100 that year. And, and i got to be honest with you, bef- before we were put in touch, I didn't know... A lot about this tournament. It wasn't an Olympics, it wasn't a world championship. What can you tell us, uh, just to, first of all, what it was, the 1967 Centennial Tournament?
0: Well, really, it was, uh, we'd like to call it the first Canada Cup, you know, those of us who were involved. Uh, but it, uh, it took part in the first week of, uh, of January. It had four teams the U.S., the Czechs, uh, the Russians, and ourselves. And that's when Canada had a, uh, a hockey team that was uh, uh, comprised of Father Bowers' uh, ideals of having uh, guys like myself who were could go to school, could get a degree, but still play a competitive level of hockey. And so we had a team in being. We were located right in, in Winnipeg. And uh, actually, the prime minister attended our last game, but uh, it was a round-robin series, and... and uh, we uh, we beat the Czechs in the first game five three and then handled the U uh, S pretty handily and then on the night of the sixth we played the uh, Russians and uh, if you look back over the record you'll find that we didn't have a whole lot of success against the Russians uh, they were they were basically pros. You know, playing 11 months of the year type of thing, and as I say, I was teaching the school at the time, and and uh, other members of our team were uh, you know working as accountants or lawyers or going to school uh, to complete their degree, and so uh, uh, to come up with a victory that night, a 5-4 victory, uh, was really uh, monumental, and uh, and uh, it's something that you know a bunch of us now are, have been sharing little stories over the past few days about that, that time in our life. And we forget a lot of things about it because it's been 50 years ago. But it was uh, really, uh, I think, a remarkable, uh, you know, a victory. And uh, one of our fellows, Billy mcdonald who got the winning goal, as a matter of fact, uh, from PEI, he, he basically said that uh, the thing that grabbed him the most was that uh, when we were sending the uh, blue line after the, after the final game, all of a sudden, uh, you know, Winnipeg, Winnipeg is such an ethnic community, but uh, you could hear pockets of people in the crowd all of a sudden start singing O Canada. And he said he had never heard that before. You know, it's common now. But uh, it really seemed to bring the nation together, and uh, in celebration of our hundredth anniversary, and apparently the Prime Minister uh, uh, Pearson was at the game because the captain of the time, Terry O'Malley, uh, ended up uh, uh, presenting him with the puck, and so uh, and apparently there was quite a uh, quite a widespread uh, TV audience for that game too. So uh, it's something that uh, we, uh, those of us involved, sure remember and remember with uh, with. Uh, Gratification.
1: Barry McKenzie joining us at Inside Sports, talking about the 1967 Centennial Tournament. As Barry just mentioned, a four-team round robin, Canada beating the Soviet Union 5-4 in, in the last game to cement first place in that tournament. Um, I, I, I've heard, Barry, and maybe you can clarify here, I, I heard that the Soviet Union was, was pretty unhappy with that loss and had a pretty... Uh, drastic reaction? Like, did they change the rest of their season schedule or something to get ready for the worlds, or what? What happened there?
0: Apparently, they did. They canceled the regular season oh, uh, because they were concerned that uh, you know we were going to be formidable opponents uh, down the road, and uh, and then he ended up, I guess, just really focusing on training that that uh, the, those group of individuals that they thought would be representing the team and you know they had the likes of Yakushev, uh starshanov i mean they they had if you look at the lineup they had they had a formidable group of players and and uh, uh you know we, we, the thing that helped us a bit too was that uh, we had all been amateurs right from the get go and uh, uh prior to that that year 67 uh, uh jack uh, red bonus from winnipeg uh, who had been a pro with montreal and 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 Carl Brewer, uh, you know, the all-star defenseman of the Leafs, they both were reinstated as, as amateurs. And so uh, they gave a little bit of a depth to us, a little bit of stability for uh, uh, some of us younger guys at the time.
1: Well, that's, that's incredible. I mean, tell people a little bit about that era because, I mean, you've now seen pros play in the Olympics and we have the World Cup but but you mentioned you were on a, you were in the national team program and you were referencing you and a bunch of the other guys you all worked other jobs right and then still represented Canada internationally is that basically how it worked
0: well yeah like I was teaching at the time I'd I'd be lucky to get there for the last half of the practice uh, oh, and you know you know' <laughs> we're, uh, you know, compared to, as I say, with all these, uh, the Russians and those other teams where they were basically pros. And, and so, uh, yeah, it was it was difficult, but it was Father Bauer's idea, again, that you could get a group of guys together that uh, could, could get an education uh, and uh, not not commit, you know, still go into pro, pro hockey after that. We had a number of our, our players that have gone on and played in pro hockey and done very well. But uh, that could do that, could play a high level of hockey, uh, and uh, that that was his dream, and uh, and uh, unfortunately, in in '64, I don't know if you're aware of this read, but in 1964, in uh, Innsbruck, uh, we were uh, we were playing for the gold medal game against the Russians on the last day of the tournament. The score is two-two. Uh, we go down the ice and bring one off the post. Not me, <laughs> but uh, one of our players rang the puck off the post. Uh, they came back and scored to win 3-2. But uh, we ended up being tied for second uh, with uh, the uh, the Swedes and the Czechs. And so, uh, you know, if if we had put the puck in, it might have changed the way people look at hockey. Like right now, you've got your kids that are even 9 and 10 that are, basically, like we're saying, involved in hockey 11 months of the year and have nothing on their mind but uh, pro hockey. And, uh, you know, it, it's hard to play, uh, you know, some 80 games of major junior hockey and still get a good, uh, you know, uh, schooling. And so uh, it's just a little bit more difficult. And, uh, unfortunately, uh, if we had had that uh, what went off the boats maybe it uh, might have changed the face of hockey in
1: Canada. Well, for sure. And then because of the tiebreaker, you guys actually were placed fourth, right? So you, you, you didn't get a medal at all. But you were in the 1968 Olympics, and you wound up with a bronze medal. I think that came down to a game with the Soviets as well. Uh, but you did wind yeah. up with a medal that year. How, how special was the medal in 1968? What do you remember about that tournament?
0: you know, when you get it, you're always shooting for the gold. so when you get a bronze, you're not that excited, you know, but when you look back on, you know, years later, you say, you know, hold on, maybe, you know, the, but the level of competition, uh, you know, the demands of the time, you're playing over to another country, et cetera, uh, that maybe it's a pretty good uh, accomplishment. So uh, I have to say I've got uh, my medal hanging up on the uh, wall in my office here and uh I'm quite proud of it. And, uh, uh, again, it was uh, something as a team I think that we uh, were quite quite pleased with.
1: Yeah. Well, Barry, those are incredible stories. Uh, I know you you did a whole bunch of other stuff. But before I let you go, um, I almost don't know what to ask you. You you went in you went to Japan in the mid '70s. Were you were you a player, coach? What was, what was that experience like?
0: Well, again, my uh, father had, it really had a tr- tremendous influence on my life, and he was involved in uh, hockey in Japan. And uh, a buddy of mine, uh, Terry O'Malley, had gone over there a few years before me, and then. Uh, I had a chance to go over and it was it was a great great uh, experiment uh, I played over there for three years uh, um, each team was allowed to have two uh, foreigners uh, guy uh, on the team and uh, myself and Doug Buchanan were on Cebu and uh, like a guy like Starshnov, Russia he was uh, on one of the other teams and so uh, it was very competitive uh, we we played in six tournaments in the three years that I was over there, and uh, we were fortunate that our team ended up uh, winning three of them. And uh, but it was just uh, you know, quite frankly, I guess uh, I enjoyed it immensely. But. I think that uh, the Japanese uh, uh, the culture—they just—they wanted to. Uh, I think whatever we could contribute to their society and uh, their hockey playing, and, uh, you know, was the number one thing. And uh, you know, uh, I, I think that's about as far as it went. I don't think we've ever had any long-lasting relationships since with people over there since then.
1: Barry, thanks so much for sharing your stories, and I think you enlightened a lot of people today, too, on the 1967 Centennial Tournament, because like I said, I certainly didn't know a lot about it. Maybe we can do this again someday. I really appreciate your time, and thank you for joining us on Inside Sports. Okay. Thanks very much. That is Barry McKenzie. Man, I could have kept going there. Some incredible stories from him. I used to coach Wendell Clark, Brenda Moore, we talked a little bit about Japan, played in a couple of Olympics, played for Father David Bauer, and uh, they, the, 50 years ago today, 50 years ago today, they pulled off that incredible upset to win the Centennial Tournament over the Soviet Union in Winnipeg, and there's more on that on uh, our website, 630 chedcom This is Inside Sports. Hey, this is Jordan Everly from your Edmonton Oilers. You're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio, 630 ched. before Thanks for tuning in tonight, Inside Sports on 630 Chet. Oilers and Devils tomorrow. Man, that was awesome to have Barry McKenzie on the show. You miss anything on Inside Sports or you like something so much, you want to hear it again, go to 630chet.com. You can sign up for the Inside Sports podcast, which includes all the editions of Overtime Open Line after each Oilers game with Rob Brown and me, and, of course, every, uh, every uh, Inside Sports show as well. I mean, this week uh, uh, alone, we just had Barry McKenzie on. We had Warren Moon on the show. We had actor Aaron... J- Uh, Actor Eric Johnson in studio, Edmonton guy. He's in the upcoming movie Fifty Shades. Darker. That's probably going to make a kajillion dollars when it comes out in February. So uh, always happy when you check out those. Thanks for tuning in tonight. Our scoreboard is presented by Crystal Glass for all your glass needs. Visit crystalglass.ca. Still four nothing. Toronto over New Jersey. That is after two. Also after two. Panthers one. Predators nothing. After the first period, Chicago up one nothing on Carolina. Even though the Hurricanes with a 19-9 edge in shots on goal, the Avalanche have an early one nothing lead over the Islanders. Still to come tonight, Flames at Canucks, Coyotes at Ducks, Oil Kings in Lethbridge. It's 1-1 with eight and a half minutes left in the first period. We'll update those those again before 8 o'clock tonight. Still ahead, uh, man, we've been doing some flashing back. Tonight, we'll continue that theme with former Eskimos quarterback Jared zabransky Remember that incredible 2007 Fiesta Bowl where his Boise State team upset Oklahoma? You remember those trick plays? The hook and lateral at 4th and 18? I think you know what I'm talking about. He's up next. Inside Sports on Chet. Um.
2: Hi, this is Ryan Eugene Hopkins from your Edmonton Oilers. You're listening to
1: Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio 6:30 Jet. Oilers and Devils tomorrow, 3:30 face-off show. Game starts at five here on 6:30 Jet. My name is Reed Wilkins. Uh, we were talking about something that happened 50 years ago in the last half hour. Little more recent history. This happened 10 years ago this week.
0: Zobrinsky might be the last play of his career. Back to pass. Sets up. Fires. Caught. the quarterback the ball is snapped Freda rolling to the right fires got a man out there touchdown Boise State oh mama Boise State out of the huddle trailing 42 to 41 going for a two-point conversion from the three-yard line and it's a fake play they're gonna (laughs) score Ian Johnson and ran it in for
1: a touchdown! And the Broncos have won the Fiesta Bowl! That was ten years ago, at the start of 2007. Of course, this year's national championship game in college football, Monday, Alabama against Clemson. And what's interesting about that Boise State game? Uh, huge upset. Boise State was undefeated, but coming out of a weaker conference to play a power like Oklahoma. And the quarterback for that Boise State team would later play for the Edmonton Eskimos, and that is Jared Zabransky who joins us now on the line. Jared, welcome back to 6:30, Chet. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing well. For having
1: me. Yeah, good to talk to you again. Obviously, uh, b- been a while since you were uh, a regular interview on this uh, on this station. Give fans a an idea of what you're up to these days. How's life?
2: Well, that's good. Lots of changes lately. I'm actually uh, starting up a, a real estate investment sales company in Boise, Idaho. Um, in the process of. Uh, getting everything established and and underway here in the first quarter and uh should be should be seeing some transactions uh, hoping within the next six or eight weeks or or the start of some transactions I should say and uh, you know I'm just excited to get back to Boise Idaho and to, to get involved in that community again there's a lot of growth that's been taking place over the last several years and, and uh, you know I've just been trying to find a way to get back and and idea with a, with a partner. You
1: know, fever, so. Well, right on. Well, and that's awesome. You, uh, you still have a strong connection to Boise, which is, uh, you know, the, the game that is long remembered. And, and this week, over the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of talk about the 10th anniversary of that uh, 2007 Fiesta Bowl. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you're part of one of those I- I- incredible moments. What, what's it? First of all, before we get into some of the memories of that game, what, what's it like to, to still be talking about it 10 years later?
2: You know the scope of the situation when you're involved in it, and you know there there needs to be a little time to set in. But you know, obviously, 10 years is plenty of time. Um, you know, it's, it's humbling to to know, you know what we did and, and how it is how it's being remembered and kind of revered in college football these days. It's, It, in my opinion, has shaped our current college football landscape as much as any singular event, and probably more so than any other singular event. And, you know, just to know that uh, we play such a a large role in the current landscape, and I think college football, um, you know, the football ball division, I think that is heading in the right direction, and See the playoff system that has materialized over the last few years here, and it continues to be discussions of expansion. I think so eventually they're going to they're going to get it right. I, I I certainly see them on the, the direction toward that.
1: Well, that's I'm glad you brought that up because you guys in 2007, even though you hadn't lost, were ranked uh, eighth in, by the BCS, the the Bowl Championship Series at, at that time. Uh, do you think And so you've mentioned I mean this game As much as any Led to the four team Tournament they have now you think it needs To be an eight Or heck maybe even A 16 team tournament So uh, You know Some of the Boise State type Schools have a shot Yeah
2: absolutely I think they can They can model It just like uh, The one double A Which used to be One double A The football Championship here I don't know If I'm calling those Right but uh, you know, I think that their, their template that they use can be duplicated. Now, you know, there's people smarter than I that are sitting in that, that committee that need to figure that out and how they're going to do that with uh, still capturing the, the monetary value of these games, uh, which has been so important to, to you know, the college. Sports landscape, and you know, there's a lot of money that gets exchanged, you know, changes hands during the, the bowl game. So there's still a lot to figure out there, but yeah, I think it needs to expand to 12 or 16 teams, um, you know, to, to really come to a true champion. Uh, you know, I think you have to you have to let it materialize over several games in a little bit larger of a playoff format.
1: Jared Zabranski joining us tonight on Inside Sports. All right, so the 2007 Fiesta Bowl, uh, I mean, you guys, it it was an incredible game. Everybody remembers mostly about the final minute and a half, and and then what you guys were able to do right at the end of regulation time and overtime with with some unusual plays uh i I hesitate to call them trick plays because i i I know a lot of times when you say that to football players they say it wasn't a trick we practiced it but you you had fourth and 18 and and you called the hook and lateral play um i mean you got to execute the first pass on that before the lateral happens were you surprised that it was actually called? Or were you maybe expecting it that in this situation you'd go to that part of the playbook? What do you remember about that situation?
2: No, we weren't expecting that play call at all. But if you listen to any other recordings from our offensive coordinator or our head coach, you know there really wasn't a lot left in the playbook, um, especially something that we hadn't went to. Third down and 18, we called a... Play that allowed us to try to get into what we thought their coverage would be into a hole the cover two over on the sideline, and you know I, I threw a pretty decent ball and and the receiver tried to make a play on it and we just weren't able to do that so we we utilized that play on third and eighteen we really didn't have a whole lot left um, in the game plan so you know when it's called. Uh, I've talked to a few people recently, and it's, for me it was it was just the, the same as any other play that we had ran previously in that game. It was really kind of focused to get the guys on the same page and, and understanding what their job was for that particular play and really focus on the – the small details of the execution side of things, um, you know, a play call like that, you get outside of yourself pretty quickly and, and let some down creep in would have been catastrophic for the success of that play. So yeah. you know, when, I, when I filled in the play call, it was more trying to keep everybody involved on uh, – what the nature was at hand and that was running a play trying to execute a play rather than think about holy cow this is the hook and ladder this this may be you know for lack of a better term a hell mary for us so
1: did did you expect and again i know what was happening so fast at the time but was it a let me put it this way was it a play designed to get the first down or was it a play designed to get a touchdown if it worked
2: no, that play was like uh, when we had ran it previously, that play was was more so a play of hey the, the clock's gonna expire and this is our last chance to get in the end zone. So you know, we were thinking end zone. Okay. Um, and, and by the by the way that we had ran it in the scenario that we had practices in um, it was definitely to get the ball in the end. so there's the way that we had things set up with fish relief from the tailback and then myself then everybody kind of being aware that the <laughs> excuse me, the ball could end up in their hands, including offensive linemen. Right. So <laughs> I, I was definitely trying to get the ball to the end zone.
1: Okay. Uh, Jared Zabransky joining us. We're talking about some memories of that incredible 2007 Fiesta Bowl. His Boise State team won it in overtime over Oklahoma. In overtime, they went first. They scored. You're down seven. You get fourth and two on the five. And again, kind of deep in the playbook with uh, wide receiver Vinnie Peretta taking the snap and throwing a pass. I believe you split out to the left. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. Um, as as the star quarterback on that team, Jared, was there any our season is on the line and you're going to let somebody else throw the big pass?
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That was that was the discussion on the sideline was whether or not you know that was the right decision in my mind executed. I completely won the ball Um, and for us to call a different play where you know it was a run pass option if that's what we wanted to get to I could run fairly well myself so I I figured you'd want to do that with the ball in my hands but um, you know fortunately we were able to to get enough deception on that play with the run option that tight end was able to leak out and make a play on the ball and the ball was thrown to a perfect place where he could only you know, only he could make the play so, uh, but definitely you know, when we're on the sideline there was there was some words back and forth on the play call and and as I understand it, uh, you know, the head coach, Chris Peterson wasn't too thrilled about the call either Uh, but uh, again, you know hindsight's always twenty twenty and when you have success on the play it's, you know they're they're a magician and, and brilliant so right. we'll we'll just leave it
1: at that. Okay, fair enough. And then you guys decided to go for two and the win rather than uh, try an extra point, higher percentage play that would have forced another overtime session. And, and that one worked uh, at another memorable play where you fake the throw to your right. And, and Jared, did you actually hand it off behind your back to Ian Johnson?
2: Yeah, that's right. So you, you got the ball in, in a typical drop position, you know, up above your number, just underneath the chin, and you hold your ball you know, as you're executing the, the fake you're Taking the ball in your left hand and handing it behind your back. So it was—it was, it was uh, definitely the hardest handoff that we had in our playbook, and, and it, it took a lot of uh, patience on the running back's part as well as as focus on actually grabbing the handoff to where he's actually, you know, receiving a handoff in, in other plays. Um, so lots of concentration and, and some deception.
1: Well, and, and it, it led to a, a memorable game. And like I referenced earlier, you're, you're, st- you're still asking questions about who knows, we may do this for the 20-year anniversary and, and 10 more years, Jared. But uh, uh, great to catch up with you. Great memories of that game. And j- before I let you go, uh, I mean, uh, univer- and, you, and you lived here in Edmonton and in Canada, so you got a sense, I think, of what the sports culture is like in university athletics. Just aren't the same Canada as as they were as they are south of the border. Can you just give us a sense of the mania around college football and now the lead up to Monday's national championship game and what it was like to be a, a player caught up in that and getting all that attention?
2: You know, it's huge. It's huge for the university. Um, just the sheer magnitude of the money that's involved you um, know obviously that's going to create a lot of opportunity for a lot of people to be involved and then the trickle-down effects that the the size of the game the amount of people that that are drawn in and then the I guess the pageantry and the the allegiance to your university you know that's that was a big thing it's just a the passion that people have as uh, alumni of their university, and how important, um, and how much weight is put on each one of these football games, and, and that's throughout the season. You know, the size of the tailgates, and then it just becomes a, it becomes a, a season event that, you know, these large universities, a hundred thousand plus people make make a huge attempt to be involved week in and week out and that's that's pretty special, you know, and then that build up, that culmination of build up to that point of a national championship, you know, it's and you get two teams that are playing for everything. Um, it's it's as big as any event that I've ever been around. And it's it's very, very special and it's it's a hundred plus years in the making um, you know, it's it's something that people live, you know, they they live for uh, Eat sleep and sleep and dream about playing in a big game since you're a little kid. And then, um, you know, after you graduate and move on into whatever you're doing, you're definitely, first and foremost, paying attention to your collegiate football team and, and being a good alumni. So, yeah.
1: Well, Jared, it's, it's great – yeah, right on. Man, it's it's great to catch up with you. I'm sure Eskimos fans are, are glad to hear you're doing well. All the best with your business venture, man, and uh, enjoy the weekend of uh, playoffs in the NFL and obviously the national championship game coming up in the NCAA.
2: Yeah, thank you very much for having me, read and, and go S.
1: Right on, Jared Zabransky, former Eskimos quarterback, checking in with some awesome memories of playing in that incredible 2007 Fiesta Bowl 10 years ago, and you heard him describe it. They called a play to keep their season alive in overtime where they threw a pass, and it wasn't him throwing the ball. They split him out of the backfield, and they had a backup wide receiver take the snap, roll to his right, and throw the pass. And as you heard Jared say, yeah, no doubt I was questioning that call taking the ball out of the quarterback. Can you imagine if the Eskimos did that? Had a a third and two to keep their season alive, and and they had Nate Kuhorn throw the pass instead of Mike Riley. I think we'd be doing a few hours of open line on that. Uh, Good stuff catching up with Jared Zebranski. We'll update the NHL scoreboard when we get back. It's Inside Sports on Chet.
0: This is Cam
2: Talbot from your Edmonton Oilers, and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers
1: Radio 6:30. Chet. No one in the NHL has started more games than Cam Talbot in net this season. Talbot and the Oilers in New Jersey tomorrow. The Devils trailing the Maple Leafs four nothing tonight, halfway through the third period. Panthers up two one on the Predators. That one also halfway through the third. Blackhawks with a 1-0 edge on the Hurricanes. That's in the second period. After one, Avalanche one, Islers nothing. Flames and Canucks coming up along with the Coyotes and the Ducks. My name is Reed Wilkins. It's Inside Sports on 630. Ched, good to have you along for the ride this evening. We are going to have the uh, outdoor game, the outdoor classic in Bakersfield tomorrow. That's the Bakersfield Condors uh, hosting the, uh, who are they playing? The Ontario Reign, the celebrity game tonight featuring uh, Robitaille Gretzky. Ty Gretzky's playing in that game. Ty Gretzky going to be wearing a mic for that game. I think it's already started. He's wearing a mic for that game, and then the Oilers are going to have that on their uh, on their website a little bit later on. So that's pretty cool. Uh, the Oilers will see how they react tomorrow against the New Jersey Devils. Going to be a lot of hype surrounding that game. They're going to be Hall against Larson for the first time since the trade in the summer. Brandon Davidson did practice today after missing last night's game with an illness, so we'll see how the lineup looks tomorrow at the morning skate. Uh, the Oilers practiced in Boston and then flew to New Jersey. Obviously, not a not a very long trip. And then they play Ottawa on Sunday. And then it's a six-game road trip starting uh, coming up on Tuesday. And that'll be against the San Jose Sharks, potentially, potentially for first place in the Pacific Division. That would be pretty cool. The tomorrow's the halfway point for the Oilers, okay? Tomorrow's the halfway point for the Oilers. They are twenty thirteen and seven. 10th in the entire NHL, playing New Jersey tomorrow, who are going to lose tonight to the Toronto Maple Leafs, New Jersey 25th in the league. Just some perspective uh, on the Oilers. And and I know there's still holes on the team. Certainly there have been some guys who have have had some inconsistent seasons and you were hoping to have a little bit more from. Despite all that, the Oilers are 11th in goals for per game. And how about this? They are 10th in goals against per game. They are 10th best in the league in goals against per game. A a team that in previous seasons couldn't keep the puck out of its own net, couldn't get the puck out of its own end, is now in the top 10, 10th exactly, in terms of defense. Pretty good. A little bit of perspective, And, and I realize... Uh, you know, I, I realize there are some guys, especially up front, where you're saying we need a little more. I think that's been balanced off by some guys exceeding expectations in terms of productions. Mer- production maroon example number one. I think I would put latestu in that category, though it's leveling off for him a little bit now, which was bound to happen. But at least he had a burst, and and unfortunately this guy's out for the year. But Tyler Pitlick was producing more. Than you thought he would. Now you have Pouliot at Eberly, I suppose, at the other end of the scale, the scale, in terms of not being as productive. Nugent Hopkins' point total is not very gaudy. He did get a, a big goal last night. On a, let's face it, a fortunate bounce, but none, nonetheless, they got the puck to the net, and uh, Nugent Hopkins was going to the net. So I mean, it all adds up to uh, a slightly above average uh, record for the Edmonton Oilers at 2013 and seven. So it's going to be fun. Second half of the season. We've been craving so long. Meaningful games after Christmas. Christmas. Meaningful games into February and March. We are indeed going to get those. Another NHL note today. Brendan Gallagher out at least eight weeks. He had surgery on his left hand. Carter Hart from Sherwood Park. Returning to Edmonton today after... Losing the gold medal game in the World Juniors last night to the United States and uh, Hart saying he'll probably appreciate the silver medal in time.
2: Yeah, um, like right now it's, it's, it's tough, but um, at the same time we're, we're, we're all very proud of what we got done and um, it's a lot better than, than what we got last year at the sixth place finish in Helsinki. So um, I thought I thought everyone did a great job this whole tournament
1: and and uh, it's a tough way to lose out like that, but I'm very proud of all of them and, and I love all those guys. All right, Carter Hart, he'll be fine. He's going to have a great career. All right, we're winding her down tonight. I hope you have a great weekend planned. I'm going to be talking to you again tomorrow and Sunday. Oilers broadcast starts at 3.30 tomorrow. The game against the Devils will face off at 5. I want to thank Warren Mulvey, who had to fill in for the ill Kellen Kennedy tonight. Warren, you did a great job. He's giving me the big thumbs-up. You'll get to know Warren here in the uh, weeks and months to come on 630 Chat. I want to thank the producer of the show, Dave Campbell. Thanks to our guests tonight, Jared Zabransky, Barry McKenzie, Stefan Radzinski. Remember, rzadracing.com. Go vote for him to be in the uh, race of champions. He's, he's closed it to now within 200 votes. He was 600 when we started with him about an hour ago. Corey Hirsch joined us as well. Get more on 630Chad.com. My name is Reed Wilkins. Thank you so much for tuning in. Charles Adler tonight is up next. 630Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630Chad.